MSW Media. A whistleblower claims that the Trump White House pushed him to downplay the Russian attack on our electoral process. What can we do about it? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode, with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Andrew Donnelly, James Fromeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Ari Lamstein, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say this was shocking news to me. You know, the last time that a whistleblower came forward with this sort of explosive allegation about Trump, it resulted in impeachment. And this dominated the news for, I don't know, maybe eight hours. And then there was some new outrage. And I have to say, one thing that blows my mind is there's so many scandals and outrages that would um, sink any other president. But we have gotten to a point now where I think everyone's just throwing up their hands and they're shrugging and just hoping Trump's going to lose uh, because there's really not much it seems like we could do about any of this stuff. And that's kind of the demoralizing, you know, atmosphere we've all been living through for the last four years. From the moment he announced his candidacy, it all seemed just too ridiculous. And But every ridiculous aspect of this piles on top of each other and no one knows where to look or what to grab onto. You know, what idea will really take hold and, and nothing seems to penetrate the uh, psychology uh, or the approach and, and perspective of his true believers. Yeah, I, I have to say that, you know, we have had just over the last month, right, so many scandals, you know, Trump calling the uh, uh, veterans and, and those who died in battle uh, losers. Uh, we had Bounty Gate, where the Russians are literally putting bounties on the heads of our troops, and Trump wouldn't even raise the issue with Putin. You know, we've had um, more re- recently his you know statements saying that he was trying to downplay the threat of the virus. You know, you, just the other day he had an indoor rally with thousands of people inside with no masks, no social distancing. There's just one thing after another, and and this is one of them. And the th- the thing that makes me believe that this this particular set of allegations by this whistleblower are so important is that they cut to the heart of whether or not Trump is cooking his reelection. Uh, in other words, uh, is he going to slant the election in his favor? Because, for example, this whistleblower alleges that he was pushed to modify assessments to ensure that they matched up with the public comments by President Trump on the subject of Antifa and anarchist anarchist groups. 
In other words, Trump's been saying all this nonsense that Joe Biden is leading an army of Antifa to, you know, whatever, to destroy your homes or businesses or something. This, this Essentially, they're cooking the intelligence to match that. And then this out the same um, whistleblower is alleging that, at, you know, the, while the Russians are interfering in our election to help Trump win, he was encouraged to downplay that and not to issue any further intelligence on Russian efforts to attack our electoral process and instead to emphasize uh, uh, efforts by other nations to interfere. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's appalling is an understatement really at this point. I, I We just want it to be over, but there's also that fear that it won't be, you know, they're starting to have these uh, conversations about the different scenarios in which he refuses to give. You know, basically, the bottom line is he has to lose by an overwhelming number. So it's unquestionable. But even then, I worry. Yeah, I I really worry as well. I think that the legit that he is going to challenge the legitimacy of the election. And with the pandemic that has you know gone out of control due to Trump, we you know will not have a winner on election night potentially because there's going to be so many mail-in ballots trickling in for weeks and so days weeks whatever so i do think there that trump's going to challenge the legitimacy of the election and it really plays into putin's hands because putin wanted to destroy our faith in the system destroy our faith in our own government our own electoral process and trump is doing that for him absolutely it's uh he's handing it over to him Lock, sock, and barrel, literally. Yeah, it, it is crazy. Um, it's the sort of thing that has motivated me to uh, do whatever I can to speak out against Trump. I will say that, um, you know, with with this particular issue, what one of the things that makes me so sad is, you know, unlike the past whistleblower whose identity was secret, this whistleblower put his name on the uh, whistleblower complaint. His name is Brian Murphy. He's the former acting undersecretary of Homeland Security for intelligence and analysis. And he's a career public servant. And these are the sort of people that are being driven out by Trump, essentially people who've been dedicated public servants who are focused more on policy or in this case, intelligence rather than on, uh, you know, any political uh, uh, effort one way or the other. And this is Trump's own administration. But if they're not saying exactly what he wants, he's driving those people out. He's driving out people who are not willing to do things that are dishonest, illegal, or wrongful. We saw that last week with Miles Taylor. And now Brian Murphy is essentially alleging the same thing. And, uh, you know, he was allegedly, uh, he claims he was, that there was action taken against him to demote him and so forth. Uh, and he believes that was in retaliation for him speaking up about the wrongful actions that they were trying to get him to perform. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this, Renato. I think from the very beginning, one of the things that drew a lot of our listeners, you know, was obviously your incredibly well-informed insight to the Russian, Russian investigation. Uh, but I think what we've wanted the entire time, and we gave up hope a while ago, was we wanted a hero. I mean, that was why... You know, people were so drawn to the Mueller report and were hoping for something to be there. We, we wanted a silver bullet. And uh, and now with, you know, with in particular when I, I felt a, um, a, a really low point last week when Woodward came out and said that uh, he had these audio tapes 
of uh, the president saying that he knew that it was more dangerous than the, than the flu, that it was more deadly, that he was going to downplay it. And it's just like it, it, it just I don't know. I feel are you getting the sense that people are feeling even lower than they had at any other point? Yeah, absolutely, Patty. And I, I have to say I was on an indivisible Zoom meeting yesterday and I could feel the despondency from a number of folks on there. I will just say that, you know, one of the things that's sad to me is that a lot of people now, the conventional wisdom amongst folks on the left about Mueller is that he was a failure, that the guy didn't accomplish what he was supposed to accomplish. And I think the reality is that he was somebody who was given a very difficult task, which is to prove you know, essentially, you know, determine whether there's charges and bring charges against people who he could prove had uh, committed crimes. And he did that relating to a whole slew of people. But, you know, that is a very high bar. Um, you know, Trump is a, um, uh, you know, Trump is in his associates are people who are kind of often act like idiots rather than careful planners uh, and cunning strategists. And I think, you know, I, you know, he he you know, he certainly I think it's fair to argue that he pulled some punches, that he was overly fair, that he was not, quote, zealous, unquote, enough. But it's it's been interesting to me um, to see people dogging on the guy so much. I mean, the reality is all of these people, whether it is uh, Robert Mueller or the guy we talked to last week, Miles Taylor, who's come out and spoken up, or Brian Murphy. None of these people are perfect people. I think they are all trying to tell the truth, to move the, the world forward in a positive way. And I think people need to understand there isn't a savior out there. There isn't some white knight. I, would, I think I had always said back in the day when we were talking about the Mueller investigation, you know, not to, you know, Mueller's like a man. He's a prosecutor. A federal prosecutor's not an angel or a a god or a superhero. He doesn't have a cape. And he was not going to wave a magic wand and change everything. And I think, you know, people have given up on the magic wands, but now they, they, they feel like there's, they need a superhero to win this election for him. Yes, please. Something for the love of God, Renato. <laughs> this needs to end. I don't know. Well, maybe Miss Marvel or Iron Man or something will, uh, will emerge. Um, but until then, uh, we have Bradley Moss, who's going to be our guest today. And 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 Brad, Bradley Moss is one of the attorneys representing the whistleblower, Mr. Murphy. Uh, and he represents a lot of whistleblowers. He's at a law firm, uh, the firm of Mark Zaid, that uh, represented the um, previous whistleblower who was the subject of the impeachment inquiry. And uh, Mr. Moss specializes in litigation. Uh, in you know matters relating to national security and FOIA, and also uh, on uh, whistleblower um, issues, and you probably have seen him on uh, television from time to time because he also comments a lot on whistleblower issues, given that he's got a lot of expertise in that area of the law. But we're going to talk to him a lot about his client today. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Brad. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Anytime. Always happy to join. Well, look, this is obviously hugely important uh, whistleblower allegation. Uh, it received a tremendous amount of attention as well. It should have. Can you um, can you explain for our listeners who may not be on top of all the details? Exactly. You know, give us an overview of what it is that your client alleged. 
Sure. So Brian Murphy uh, was until just a few weeks ago, the acting undersecretary for what's called the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the Department of Homeland Security. That's a large loaded term, basically saying he ran all the intelligence, uh, the intelligence side of DHS. And he reported almost pretty much directly to the acting secretary, Chad Wolf. Um, he was demoted a few weeks ago and reassigned to a lesser position, um, which has resulted in the current whistleblower complaint. And what the whistleblower complaint outlined was basically five sets of protected disclosures that span the last two years, um, outlining how Mr. Murphy has been trying within, you know, the authorized and legal channels and inside DHS to raise concerns about the manipulation and censorship of intelligence information, particularly when it comes to um, Russian interference operations in the election process, um, as well as the downplaying the very serious, you know, domestic uh, criminal threat from various uh, white supremacist outfits. Uh, and he out, we outlined in this complaint and it was submitted to the Inspector General of DHS. It was submitted to the uh, Inspector General of the Intelligence Community as a matter of urgent concern, and now it is being reviewed by various oversight committees in Congress. It outlined the problems of political interference from individuals such as Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli um, in terms of how they are trying to modify facts and, and manipulate facts to fit a preset political view. There's always going to be a desire to fit things, to uh, fit information to fall in line with your policy arguments. That's natural. But the problem that Mr. Murphy outlines is where facts themselves are being manipulated and censored in order to make a policy argument plausible. Yeah, that's uh, an important distinction because obviously uh, all of us, not only the members of the public, to, to the extent we're aware of intelligence that's made public. Obviously, members of Congress make rely on intelligence reports uh, when they're making decisions regarding, for example, how to appropriate uh, funds. And then, obviously, there are people throughout the executive branch who rely on those intelligence reports to the extent that they are false or misleading or or uh, doctored or slanted in some way. That's obviously highly problematic. And here. You know, there was this the foreign side and the domestic side. I think on the foreign foreign side, it's fairly obvious to see why, for example, uh, you know, the Trump administration might want to downplay concerns about the Russian uh, interference operation uh, in our electoral process, given, you know, um, the intelligence community's prior finding that uh, Russia was trying to help uh, the Trump campaign in the last election. Could you kind of describe for us what that political pressure looked like? I, I, I did read it in the complaint, but I think for our listeners, it may be helpful to hear it, to hear it from you. Sure. So, and some of these details remain classified. So the client, Mr. Murphy, hasn't even been able to disclose it to us yet, let alone is it, it's not even outlined in the complaint because the complaint is an unclassified document. Um, and there's, uh, ongoing discussions to try to determine to what extent he will be permitted to present the classified information to not only the inspector general, inspectors general, but also to the congressional oversight committees. But basically what the uh, complaint outlined was how uh, information was compiled 
um, by the Office of Intelligence Analysis regarding these various disinformation and interference efforts by, by a number of foreign players, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, any number of them. And the analysis, the factual analysis, not necessarily what a policy argument would be, the factual analysis made very clear the overwhelming threat coming from the Russians again, just like how they tried to interfere in 2016 and the broad and systematic way in which they were outlining um, these disinformation efforts. And what Mr. Murphy explained and identified was that pressure kept coming back from senior leadership, whether it was Chad Wolf or Ken Cuccinelli, to, again, kind of manipulate the facts to minimize the nature of the threat. Not saying that there isn't a threat, but to minimize it and try to put it on the same level as the comparative threat from China and Iran and try to downplay it so as to not place the president um, in a bad, you know, political uh, public relations like is obviously the president has kind of consistently tried to downplay what has gone on with the Russians, consistently tried to make it sound like it was no big deal as he's, you know, you know, pursued this, you know, uh, more friendly approach to Vladimir Putin and try to say this had nothing to do with my election election. Uh, cast any doubt on legitimacy of his win in 2016. And so there were these efforts to modify the underlying factual details through uh, constantly sending back uh, analyses and reports saying, no, this isn't approved, this isn't approved. You've got to make it seem like it's not putting the president in a bad light. You've got to make it seem like the facts support the president's argument that what the Russians are doing is no different than what the Chinese and the Iranians are doing. And that's obviously something that's continued to be a problem. I mean, there was eventually a report that came out, but it didn't come from DHS. It came from the ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, saying the Russians are the largest threat. And that was a big, huge, you know, uh, pub uh, public relations issue for the president. And remember, he publicly disputed what his own ODNI had said, saying he doesn't believe it. But this is what people like Mr. Murphy, who were trying to keep facts to be facts and truth to be truth, uh, provide that information to the policy advisors. The policy advisors kept pushing back, demanding the facts be changed so that their policy argument would be more viable. Yeah, it's interesting. I, we, you know, it, Many of our listeners may have heard Mr. Wolf on the various Sunday morning programs and the other news programs talking on behalf of the administration and talking about this very issue. So it's interesting. He, um, of course, never was Senate confirmed. He's an acting. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli is an acting who was using a title that I think a court later determined he shouldn't even have been using. Uh, they're definitely, I think, uh, more politically aligned with the administration. Mr. Murphy, however, appears to me to be a career public servant. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, he's been in it for over 20 years, both service in the military, including um, in Iraq. And then he was spent a number of years with the Federal Bureau of Minute, uh, sorry, with the FBI um, before he came over to DHS. And his, his transfer over to DHS was only within the last couple of years, um, but he brought you know, a wealth of experience and subject matter expertise. And what's critical here is his politics don't necessarily appear to be much of the issue. I candidly don't even know what his politics are, nor do I really care. What matters is he identified what he viewed as an effort to interfere with the underlying factual intelligence, an effort to pressure uh, and censor the collection and 
dissemination of that intelligence to the authorized individuals and try to manipulate it. And he has gone through the lawful channels. What ultimately comes out of the investigation, what determinations are made, whether it's by the inspector, various inspectors general or by Congress, is not for Mr. Murphy nor me to say. What matters is that he went through this the proper way. He has gone through it the way the regulations and the most recent uh, legislative reforms envisioned, and that this makes him a protected whistleblower who should be who uh, should not be subject to retaliation for having done what he's allowed to do, what the law contemplates. So before he filed this whistleblower complaint, what, what did he do? You talked about lawful steps. Can you help us understand what those, those steps were? Sure. So the initial things he had done was uh, dates back to two years ago when um, then uh, DHS Secretary Kristen Nielsen had been testifying before Congress. There had been concerns about the details, the factual information uh, that was being presented to Congress about the number of known or suspected terrorists crossing uh, the southwest border. And that was part of the argument going on at the time about building the border wall. And there was a lot of dispute about the accuracy of the information DHS was conveying to Congress and the figures. And Mr. Murphy at that time seeing what he viewed as inaccurate information being presented, and he was basing it in part on his role in preparing Secretary Nielsen for those congressional hearings, had filed anonymous inspectors, uh, inspectors general reports uh, within DHS at the time raising concerns. And it, as we outlined in the complaint, based off subsequent discussions, it's his belief and understanding that certain senior players, including Chad Wolf, who was the chief of staff back then, were aware that he was the one, that Mr. Murphy was the one who had filed those reports because there were only so many people who would have known the underlying details. The other parts he took were efforts, whether it was the manipulation of the intelligence regarding Russian interference, whether it was what's called the Homeland Threat Assessment, which had to do also with this issue of uh, domestic uh, criminal threats from white supremacists and those affiliated groups. He raised his concerns to those authorized individuals within his chain of command, whether it was his immediate supervisor, a man named Mr. Glau, who was the original secretary for Office of Intelligence Analysis when Mr. Murphy was the deputy undersecretary. He raised it to Chad Wolf when he became the acting secretary. He raised it to Ken Cuccinelli, all of whom are the proper authorized individuals in whom you're supposed to raise these concerns. He didn't run to the media. He didn't run to unauthorized parts of Congress or anything like that. He went within his supervisory train as the chain, as is envisioned by the regulation. And it wasn't until recently when, as the now acting undersecretary for Office of Intelligence Analysis, when he was reassigned and demoted by Chad Wolf as part of Mr. Wolf's uh, political play to become the confirmed uh, DHS secretary, and in retaliation for Mr. Murphy's efforts to push back on these uh, this improper censoring and manipulation of intelligence, then Mr. Murphy finally had to take the step of retaining counsel and filing a more formal and detailed IG report. And that's what everybody saw last week. How do you respond? There's been some critics. I know Susan Hennessy from Lawfare is one of them who said that this is that the his the action that Wolf took took against him was not connected to his um, his his protected actions. In other words, the actions that he took to expose this wrongful activity. How do you how do you respond to that? That's for the IG to ultimately determine. That's not for 
um, Ms. Ms. Hennessy, that's not for me or anyone else, to render the final determination. What we've outlined, and it's a, you know, it's a publicly available document. Anybody can go on, you know, to the HIPSI uh, website and find it. It's rather detailed. We outlined how we view these sets of disclosure, protective disclosures over two years, compiling and compounding until we reach the, you know, the, the final moment in August, on August 1st, 2020, when Mr. Uh, Murphy was reassigned and demoted. It's our assessment. It's our uh, assertion that that was the culmination of all those concerns being brought up and a culmination of a desire by Chad Wolf to retaliate. What the ultimate determination will be by the IG is for, a, is for someone other than me to decide. People can review the complaint. They can reach their own conclusions. But this is our assessment that he believes he was retaliated against and that he has gone through the lawful channels to raise that concern. So you admit you mentioned the HIPSI website, just so everyone knows, that's the House Select Con, uh, Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Adam Schiff is the chair, uh, the chairperson of that committee. He has uh, spoken uh, about this complaint, was seemed very alarmed by it. And I know we have a question from a listener about uh, Congress's response to this. Uh, Patty, do you have that? Folks obviously want uh, there to be something. They want to know if Congress is acting urgently enough to conduct oversight. That's a big concern for everybody. So as far as I can see, yes. At the moment, Congress, both the House and the Senate, and there's been you know, a publicly available correspondence from the Senate as well, from the Senate Intelligence Committee, does seem to be moving on it rather quickly, which is a good sign. Um, the one caveat is we don't know to what extent yet DHS will cooperate. Obviously, Mr. Murphy remains a federal employee. He's going to continue complying with whatever obligations uh, can, uh, apply to him in terms of getting proper approval from the agency to speak to Congress. He's not going to break those rules and he's not going to speak without authorization. So we are currently you know, working to ensure that DHS authorizes him to, for example, sit for depositions. You know, the House Intelligence Committee has asked for him to sit for a deposition next week. That uh, cooperation would require not only his permission to speak to Congress and to provide a classified as well as an unclassified presentation, but would require that uh, counsel, myself, Mark Zaid, and Andrew Bakai, that we be allowed to be present for both sessions, which would include clearing us for the classified session, which is something that we've done in other cases. So Congress certainly is moving quickly, thankfully. That's always what you want to see in a situation like this. They certainly have moved to get you know, uh, testimony secured rather quickly. What remains unclear is how quickly DHS will move and if they will uh, throw up roadblocks to enable Mr. Murphy to present uh, his explanations uh, not only in an unclassified and classified context, but with effective assistance of counsel. So, you know, one thing I think is important for everyone to understand is how this process can impact a whistleblower. I, you know, your your law firm had represented the prior whistleblower who was the whose um, report ultimately sparked the impeachment inquiry. I imagine it has to be a difficult thing for someone like Mr. Murphy to come forward and file a complaint like this? It's certainly not for the faint of heart, um, especially in the current uh, social media environment, given the president's uh, past uh, practice of publicly uh, shaming and defaming uh, 
whistleblowers. And you saw that throughout the investigation, throughout the impeachment process, whether it was the uh, the IC whistleblower, whether it was the Vinman brothers, who again complied with their lawful obligations to raise concerns internally. Um, any number of people who testified in a manner adverse to the president, uh, he publicly attacked, and his media allies and political allies and congressional allies joined in on those attacks. And so, you know, it can certainly have an adverse impact on your family life, on your social life, and on your career. Um, one of the Vindman brother, Alex Vindman, who testified during the impeachment inquiry, you know, so I was pretty much driven out of the army. He had to retire because there was no chance of further advancement at this point. Uh, the other the other brother, Yevgeny, who, you know, in full disclosure is obviously represented by our firm as well. Um, at this point, I uh, filed a very detailed whistleblower retaliation complaint against DOD and against the president um, for efforts to block him and to interfere with his performance evaluations and his continued advancement within the Army. So it's not easy to be a lawful whistleblower. Um, you don't have a lot of the freedoms that, say, uh, and Edward Snowden had when he was able to just give media interviews whenever he wanted and was able to, you know, raise funds however he wanted while in exile. But for these lawful whistleblowers like the Vindman brothers and like Mr. Murphy, you still have to comply with the rules that apply to you that concern you as a federal employee. And that means the president can say just about anything he wants about you, but you can't respond without authorization from the very agencies that the president oversees. And so you have to be very careful on how you pursue it. Um, and just, I'm sorry, just one procedural point, just because I always try to set this up. Um, with the with the IC whistleblower, although my boss, Mark Zaid, was one of the attorneys on that, it, just due to logistical issues, the, our firm actually didn't represent that individual. Andrew Bakai's firm did with Mark Zaid joining with Andrew through Andrew's firm doing it. Um, our firm was walled off as a you know, organizational matter. Um, just an administrative note that I always have to clarify because it got really, it got really confusing in the midst of all that chaos of how, what firm was actually representing the whistleblower. But that's obviously in the end, neither here nor there at this point. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Very helpful clarification. I, I will say that one, you know, one point I do also want to raise as point of clarification, as you mentioned, Mr. Snowden, of course, you know, he, as you pointed out, is in exile. He, has been hosted by the Russians, a foreign adversary. And, you know, part of the reason that he is, you know, so active is because he's, you know, essentially being protected by an adversary of the United States, presumably because they think that his statements are useful to harm the United States in some way, I would imagine. I could, but that that's my own opinion. Um, you know, I think you can't compare, uh, I would never compare someone like Mr. Vindman uh, to the McCurna, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman uh, or his brother um, who, you know, who your firm represents. I mean, to me, they are trying to do everything they can lawfully. And as you point out, it's a much harder road to follow the law. And uh, I think all, I think a lot of people were disgusted by the way uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was treated. Um, and I hope that Mr. Murphy it does not share that same fate of being demonized. I, I uh, can only I only hope uh, for his sake that um, he remains the anonymous public servant that he has been for the most part. Yeah, and one of the one of the things for a lot of us hope, um, 
no matter what happens um, in 50 days with the presidential election, but going forward, and this is something that Congress more than the executive branch will have to address, is stronger protections for these whistleblowers. I mean, we've come light years from where we were just a mere 20 years ago in terms of the various institutional protections for whistleblowers, especially for those in the intelligence community. Um, they were pathetic for a very long time. It's only within the last decade or so that any real protections existed for people within the intelligence community to raise concerns lawfully. But what has been shown clearly here um, with the Trump administration, with how he has responded uh, to more or less destroy the careers of the various people who uh, reported concerns about him and his particular activities, is that there need to be even greater protections, not, not just in terms of you know being fired, but also physical security. There were a lot of concerns um, that we all that we had. There was death threats that we got. Uh, there's a gentleman who's currently waiting trial for making death threats against my boss, Mark Zaid, during the impeachment saga. He's under that gentleman's under federal indictment. Um, there was no real uh, institutional process for getting physical protection for these individuals who were facing threats to their life, brought on by in no small part by, you know, uh, rather heated, you know, late verbiage from the president himself at campaign rallies. And so going forward, it's our hope that this will serve as a warning to Congress and to people who want there to be whistleblowers, no matter who's in power, Republicans or Democrats, that there have to be sufficient protections of all different manners to ensure these people can come forward and not have their lives ruined. Yeah, I, I do think that part of this is a... Um a byproduct of the Trump era. In other words, it's hard for me to imagine in a presidency, whether it's George W. Bush or Bill Clinton's or President Obama's, that a whistleblower would would be subject to sort of the public um, vitriol uh, that was uh, pushed by uh, against, for example, uh, Mr. S you, you, your boss's uh, former client, uh, the whistleblower, the subject of the impeachment inquiry. I mean, there you had United States senators trying to reveal the whistleblower's name on the floor of the Senate. Correct, which was a disgusting and vile action by um, one particular senator whose name I won't even mention because it just annoys me that he would engage in such conduct. And that same senator tried to shame the media at a campaign rally to, uh, to out the whistleblower. And let's be clear, whistleblowers, lawful whistleblowers are a critical part of keeping government, regardless of political party in power, of keeping government honest, of exposing truth. And the process is designed to allow them to do so in a way that doesn't result in just unrestrained leaks to the media, such as what people like Mr. Snowden and Chelsea Manning did, but allows it to be handled within the proper channels to safeguard what is still, in the many cases, very critical information. And so to have various members of Congress, various political pundits, all shaming and trying to expose and put at risk an individual who is a law whistleblower is just a stain on the moral, you know, uh, standard of this country. So one that uh, we've had a number of questions from our listeners that essentially assume that the actions taken uh, by Mr. Wolf, Mr. Cuscinelli and others were unlawful in some way or criminal in some way. I will say as a as a criminal uh, lawyer, I don't really I'm not it's not clear to me that there's a crime there. 
uh, is there anything unlawful other than the retaliation about uh, trying to doctor intelligence reports to state falsehoods to Congress? So it would depend on the on the circumstances. And there's obviously limits to which I can go beyond the complaint itself. But what I can say is, from what we've outlined, the criminal side is largely going to be a minor role here because, as far as I'm aware, there was no actual action. There was no action taken to produce or to, to actually falsify a document. So falsifying a federal record, yeah, yes, that would be a federal crime. So literally, such as you, you think of uh, the gentleman, uh, Kevin Kleinsmith, the FBI attorney who pled guilty to something along those lines um, in the investigation into the investigators um, in terms of uh, the Russia probe. That was an individual who literally modified a document to present false information. That is a crime. And so if Chad Wolf were to take a document that, say, Mr. Murphy had produced and remove entire sections of factual information and rewrite it with other information that was false, that could be a crime. Um, but simply to retaliate in and of itself for Mr. Uh, Murphy's refusal to modify the intelligence isn't a criminal issue, but it is absolutely unlawful and in violation of the whistleblower protections that would exist. And to retaliate in that context for Mr. Murphy's refusal to do what Mr. Wolf was saying is again, an unlawful act. It's not a criminal one, but it is one that can that the law protects Mr. Murphy from and enables him to seek um, remedy by going to the IG and to to have his position restored. So yeah, so for a lot of this, people are always assuming that there's a criminal element, but by and large, the complaint, uh, the exception of issues of potential perjury, the complaint really doesn't get into much of the ways of, of uh, criminal liability because this really isn't about that in the end. It's more about retaliation against someone who is lawfully raising concerns about improper censoring of intelligence and improper um, modification of factual information, not necessarily a criminal way, but a inappropriate way. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I also I think just to completely clarify here is would it be let's just put aside the retaliation. Let's say they didn't retaliate in the hypothetical world and your your client was still acting under secretary. Is it unlawful for them to make the request for let's say Cuccinelli or Wolf to make a request to slant the truth in an intelligence briefing? Just the, the, is their request itself unlawful versus, you know, obviously, as you point out, lot, let's say producing a false, you know, creating a false federal record or perhaps a false communication to Congress, you know, very well may be a crime. Sure. So it's still unlawful, but the remedies and the manner in which you raise concerns about it gets a little, uh, it becomes a little different in that context. So if there was, no, if there had been no actual retaliation in the end against Mr. Murphy, if he hadn't been cut out of meetings, if he hadn't been uh, reassigned and demoted and had his responsibilities reduced, but he had simply been subject to these requests and had refused them, he could still raise the concerns to the inspector general about these unlawful actions, but it wouldn't be in the context of whistleblower retaliation. He'd simply be doing what anyone in these agencies is allowed to do to raise concerns about waste, fraud, abuse, improper use of federal resources, et cetera, to the IG. And the IG can make whatever, you know, run their investigation and make whatever conclusion they want to ultimately make about the permissibility 
and the appropriateness of the request. It just wouldn't have been in the context of a whistleblower complaint. It would have simply been a straightforward standard that, uh, inspector general uh, report that people make all the time to the IG. That's what the IG does. They serve as effectively the ombudsman, the auditor for these agencies, and they receive complaints all the time. Some of them completely frivolous and others very legitimate and serious about improper actions by various uh, federal officials. And that's part of what, and Renato, I'm sure you remember this too from your days um, with DOJ, is that's part of ba some basic you know, instructional training that federal officials get when they first join the federal government about how do the IG process works and the circumstances in which you're um, allowed to, and in fact expected to raise concerns through the IG. That's right. And, and, you know, this is, you know, I'm doing some of this and going into the detail here because I think there's a lot of confusion amongst our listeners, understandably, about what is unlawful, what's just awful, uh, to use a different, you know, use a, a common phrase, awful, but lawful. And I, I would just say this is my own opinion, and I'm not putting any words in uh, Brad's mouth here, but, you know, my opinion Many of the actions that are being described here are corrupt, are evil. Um, whether or not they're unlawful, the mere requests, I don't know. I mean, one thing that is very fortunate is that thanks to Mr. Murphy, nothing came of some of these requests because he did not do the wrong thing to his credit. Um, so they're clearly wrongful. But a lot of our questions were from people, obviously, some of, some of whom thought there'd be a criminal prosecution, which, as we've discussed, is very unlikely. But some of these may not even be unlawful, but that's not even, of course, the point. I mean, I have to say one thing that has frustrated me about conversations regarding the Trump administration is people think, well, if no one's going to prison, it doesn't matter. And to me, it really matters whether or not our, our government is telling the truth. You know, one thing we've seen a lot of in the press is these, quote, fact checkers. Uh, we had uh, one of them, Daniel Dale, on the podcast in the past. And they do a great job of saying uh, Trump said this, it's a lie, or that's a lie. These intelligence briefings can be used to suggest that things that the administration is saying aren't false when they in fact are. I think that's really important. The one thing Donald Trump has done very well, and I think he was uniquely suited to do so, is to exploit a lot of the gray areas and a lot of discretion that was always afforded to government officials and a lot of the, the immunities they hold in order to perform their work. So, I mean, look, there's always been presidents who have pushed boundaries on what the law is, you know, permits and who've allowed, you know, their various subordinates to kind of run rampant. And it's not necessarily been just Republicans or Democrats. You know, the most obvious one we always think of is Nixon, but he wasn't the only one. So that's always been somewhat of a problem. But with even with the worst of the worst, even with Nixon, there was always a sense of shame that could come with it at some point where to a, at some level, finding out your supporters had done X, Y, or Z would be a basis for firing them for, you know, pulling them out of government because it was, you know, uh, unbecoming of the office. With Donald Trump, he's made clear, and this kind of goes to the comment you just made, Renato, that if there's not a criminal law in, implicated, if there's no handcuffs coming into play, he doesn't care. Break that law all you want if it furthers his agenda. If there's no risk that his person can get indicted, He'll let them keep doing it till the end of time, if only just to enrage the left. That is the gap we have here in that the system was built on customs and norms. It was built on the premise that in the end, public officials cared about ethics and cared about morals 
and had a sense of shame and honor and duty to the law, as opposed to viewing everything through the prism of, I want to maintain power and I want to drive my opponents nuts. And I don't care about anything as long as there's no criminal law implicated. And that's the real problem we found in the Trump era is how much of the system could be abused like this. And there's no real way to rein it in in some context. Now, Congress isn't going to be able to micromanage the executive branch, nor could it uh, under our, our system of government, given this separation of powers between Article One and Article Two. So that's going forward. It's a societal thing of what we're willing to accept as a society. And that's obviously where the election in 50 days comes into play of do we view this as acceptable for us as a country? And is this what we want? And if this is what people want, if this is how they believe government should be operated and run, then that's how they'll vote. And that's going to be ultimately, you know, up to the voters to decide. But the system was never built with the somewhat with someone like Donald Trump in mind, and he's exploited that very well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's sort of like when a kid does something that you would never have anticipated, like, okay, I'm going to whatever, jump off the roof. And then, and then it's like, well, you never told me I couldn't do it. Um, but, but that's because as a parent, perhaps you didn't anticipate all of the insane things that your child might try to do when you're not looking. And I think here, a lot of times people have this knee jerk reaction to assume that there's some law that covers, uh, you know, what's going on. You know, I, for example, recently with the postal service, um, you know, what Trump was doing there, I had people ask me, oh, this is a crime. He's interfering with the delivery of the mail or something, which of course is not at all what that misdemeanor is intended to cover. It's usually, it's like somebody stealing some, some uh, letters out of the, uh, out of the uh, mailbox. Um, you know, we don't, we, we have not created criminal laws to deal with a president trying to corrupt our executive branch to, you know, manipulate an election. We don't have criminal laws that, um, that capture a president trying to hijack U.S. foreign policy to help himself in an election. And we don't really have criminal laws associated with trying to change uh, the contents of intelligence reports to reflect falsehoods um, in order to mislead the American public and help a president win re-election. That doesn't mean any of these things are any less awful. It just shows to me the limitations of our system. Yeah, and to an extent there, there is a degree to which the criminal laws will never truly be able to address some of this because too much of it gets into discretionary policy um, decision-making process of the executive branch and what it is obligated to do as the branch of government that handles foreign policy, that handles diplomacy. You know, you can think of it, you know, for those who, for instance, sometimes, you know, reference uh, some of the actions the president's taken in the context of foreign policy and diplomacy. I'm sure if we were to start criminalizing some elements of that, there would have been ways, you know, within that context that Republicans would have viewed actions taken by President Barack Obama when it came to negotiating with Iran as somehow being criminal. It would have tried to use that as a, you know, a, a way to pursue criminal acts against him and his subordinates. And that's where this is, the system will never be able to encompass everything. It will never be able to weed out through criminal laws all manners of corruption. It's just not feasible in our system of government. What is required in the end is not only strong institutional protections to allow people to come forward and outline what has happened, 
but it's also going to require society caring enough and voting in a manner to bring in separate institutional checks and balances on one particular branch of government that might be out of control to ensure that in the long run, we don't, the, the, the constitutional republic we have doesn't fall apart. There's always going to be a push by the executive branch to have more discretion. There's always going to be a push by Congress to oversee it with greater scrutiny. What is required from us as a society is to make sure those two parts always remain in balance and to not allow one to run rampant over the other. And that, you know, you saw some of that and you see that you know, I'm sure you know, conservatives will see that as how they got control of Congress in 2010 and 2014 as a check on the Obama White House. And that's how, you know, the, uh, that's how Democrats viewed it when it came to 2018 as a check on the Trump White House. What's critical, in my view, is ensuring just as a system as a whole that whatever happens in 50 days ensures that there are public officials in office who view the rule of law and the principles of good governance as critical and not just viewing everything as how do I get my next cable hit on CNN or Fox and how do I own my political opponents on social media? Well, it's very well said, Brad. I, I just, I guess I'll ask you one last question, which is that, you know, obviously uh, your clients um, allegations and report made a, made a quite a splash in the news with good reason. Cause this is very, these are very disturbing allegations and, um, really point to uh, corruption in the Department of Homeland Security, or at least alleged corruption. Um, and yet uh, the news cycle changed like in a flash. And we've seen this before with uh, a number of other things, right? I mean, it was only a few weeks ago that Russian bounties on our troops were dominating the news. And then it was Trump's comments about veterans. And th th there's just one thing after another. You know, how, what does it say about our society that, the allegations that your client made didn't hold attention past one news cycle. I think it's hard for something like this to continue for, you know, days upon days, if only because there's no new information. Um, right around the same time that these allegations were made public, uh, the Woodward tapes with the president came out. Almost, I think it was on the exact same day. I mean, there's just so many different pieces of information. And so the public has to digest various different parts. And there's, you know, more information that will come out as the inspector general process goes forward, as hopefully, you know, testimony before Congress by Mr. Murphy goes forward, additional details will emerge and the public will get more information. But I don't, I don't think we ever expected that this story alone would be able to hold the news cycle for days upon days on end, because there's only so many things to say about it. And the allegations are just that they're just allegations that Mr. Murphy has said he wants an investigation and it'll be up to others to decide to what extent he's right and to what extent he was retaliated against. And that's when the that's when the news cycle returns to this issue. But there's lots of other issues for the public to be concerned about, whether it's the Russian bounties, whether it's foreign interference in the election, whether it's the, whether it's obviously the covid pandemic with which we're all you know contending right now and the president's knowledge of what had occurred. So each piece will continue to come out through the news cycles and the public will continue to be informed. Indeed. Well, we will be following uh, the investigation of this matter to the Senate's public. And I really appreciate you coming on and telling us more about your client and the allegations. Not a problem. Anytime. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. 
go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 